0: Welcome to a Voices of Esalen extended edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today's episode is a part of a series of panels presented at the 9th Annual Blue Mind Summit at the Eslin Institute in the summer of 2019, where the topic at hand was blue mindfulness and water's positive impact on our emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. Representing mindfulness in the summit is Dr. Shauna Shapiro, professor, author, and internationally recognized expert in mindfulness and compassion. Dr. Shapiro has published over 150 journal articles and co-authored two critically acclaimed books translated into 14 languages, The Art and Science of Mindfulness and Mindful Discipline. Her newest book is Good Morning, I Love You, mindfulness and self-compassion practices to rewire your brain for calm, clarity, and joy. Her work has been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Wired Magazine, USA Today, The Huffington Post, Yoga Journal, and The American Psychologist. She is a summa cum laude graduate of Duke University and a fellow of the Mind and Life Institute, co-founded by the Dalai Lama. Here's her keynote address at the ninth annual Blue Mind Summit at Esalen.
1: Hi, I'm Shauna. Uh, Shauna Shapiro. I'm a professor at Santa Clara University and a faculty at Eslin. This is. Probably my favorite thing to do in the world is be here and teach, and so grateful to all of you for coming here. It's kind of an adventure, this this topic, because it's brand new. We've never done this before, and I feel like it's really important right now in our world to find places that are healing and to look for ways that we can also heal this planet. And I think we're doing both of those by bringing these topics together. My area of study is mindfulness and compassion, but our intention is really to bring the awareness and the presence and the wisdom and compassion of of mindfulness practice to our awareness of the healing powers of water and also to use the healing powers of water to help deepen our practice. Because it goes both ways. And so there's this beautiful synergy of being here all together on this land surrounded by water. So I'm excited and I'm really grateful. Typically, I give kind of a very traditional PowerPoint presentation about what mindfulness is. But we thought since we have all this collective wisdom in the room, um, I decided to Start with a quote that Dan mentioned last night, which is by Einstein. He says, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. The word mindfulness, the word mindfulness means to see clearly, to see clearly, to see through these delusions of separateness that ultimately mindfulness allows us to see our interdependence and to not just see it, but actually have an experience of it, a taste of it. And when we begin to see clearly, we can respond effectively. We can respond with wisdom and compassion. And I remember a couple of years ago, I'm not sure where we were, Dan, but Dan was giving a talk not about the environment and not about the ocean or saving the world, but all of a sudden, this this idea of interdependence and interconnection, he said something like, this is what we need for the environmental movement, that if people understood that we're all completely connected and connected to this earth, they couldn't help but take care of it. And something kind of clicked in my mind like this this really is this is the fundamental plague of our times is our sense of disconnection, our sense of isolation, and the delusion that we 're separate from each other. I had kind of an unexpected journey into mindfulness when I was seventeen. I had major spinal fusion, so I had a metal rod put in my spine. Um, and I went from this kind of healthy, active teenager to lying in a hospital bed, unable to walk. During the many months of rehabilitation, um, I struggled a lot. And, and that's really when I found mindfulness. And so um, Jay asked me to read this short passage out of my new book, because I didn't realize, but it had to do with water. Throughout the months of rehabilitation, I struggled to live in a stranger's body. And worse, a stranger's mind. Gone was the spunky, athletic teen. And in her place was a frightened little girl where every movement was awkward and painful. But my mind was what tortured me most. I lay there feeling ever more hopeless and terrified. Will I always be in pain? I'm never going to play volleyball again. No one will ever love me. Who could be attracted to this broken body with huge red scars? I tried to push through it. I forced myself to think positive thoughts, but they couldn't quell the tremendous fear and pain. I tried distracting myself, but nothing quieted the worries raging in my mind. Then hope arrived from a place I least expected. Although my father and I shared a deep love, we were often at odds and fought about almost everything. Our relationship changed after my surgery. I'll never forget the day he walked into my room, eyes filled with fatherly love and concern, and handed me a book, Wherever You Go, There You Are, by John Kabat-Zinn, a pioneer in the field of mindfulness. I gasped as I read the opening paragraph. Whatever has happened to you, it has already happened. I read on, often through tears, as this wise book revealed a possibility that had eluded me for months I could be happy again. My resilience, shrouded by months of fear and pain, began to awaken, and I felt a flicker of hope, hope that I could heal. I read every book, article, and essay on mindfulness I could find, and the more I read and the more I practiced, the more I began to notice small changes. Instead of dwelling on the past or obsessing about the future, I started to discover little moments of peace in the present. These little moments, the in-between moments, began to matter. When my mom opened the window and I could smell the ocean air, when the last ray of sunlight retreated for the night. As my mind settled, the pain in my body began to shift. My relationship to the sensations was different. This is similar to what happened to grandpa so many years later, I realized. It was no longer my pain. Rather, it became the pain. And when I didn't exacerbate things with my fears, I began to notice moments of peace. The pain remained, but I suffered less. My mom still tears up when she recounts the moment four months after my surgery when she knew I would be okay. I was home, still in a hospital bed, but my scars were healing, and I was walking without help. On a whim, I announced I was going to the beach for a swim. I shed my frumpy gray sweatsuit that had been my uniform and donned my favorite blue swimsuit. Mom watched my emaciated body gingerly navigating the shifting sands as I made my way toward the water. She remembers holding her breath as my fire engine red scars eased into the brisk whitewash of waves. In the moment after the water washed over my head, just before I emerged to open my eyes, I felt a spark of life flash through me, a sense of rebirth, and the strength to begin again. In that moment, somehow my mom and I both knew I was going to be okay. Oh <laughs> that's my first reading, so <laughs> it's a little nervous. Um, so my journey into mindfulness was it. It happened, and um, that was over 20 years ago. And since that time, um, I really began to study the science of mindfulness because I wanted to understand how it was impacting me and how it had completely shifted my life in such unexpected ways. And so what I'd like to do this morning is share with you a little bit about the science of mindfulness and also what it is. Um, There are significant health benefits. Doing these simple practices, just like we did this morning, improves your immune function, decreases stress, lowers cortisol, helps you sleep. It increases telomerase, which is an enzyme that grows our telomeres, which are pretty much the best predictor of, of longevity and health. Mindfulness has been shown to increase our cognitive capacities. It increases our focus, attention, memory, productivity, creativity, innovation. It's really important for the helping profession. A lot of my research has looked at the impact of mindfulness on therapists, on helpers, on activists, on teachers. And it's been shown to reduce burnout, to decrease stress, to increase our empathy and compassion, to increase our ability to regulate our our emotions and our our challenges, um, and it strengthens relationships. And I think these three areas are kind of what I've been focusing on most recently and I think are most important, which is how these practices, and it really comes back to what Dan was saying, how they allow us to see our interdependence, which leads to greater compassion for other people and for ourselves. It leads to increased ethical decision-making, even if you don't talk about ethics or morality. That's what I find so interesting. We did a study with college freshmen at Santa Clara University. And it was so interesting because we taught a mindfulness course and then we had an education course um, that taught them about, you know, wise choices, like not drinking and driving, safe sex, not cheating. Um, And we learned a couple of things from the study. The first thing we learned is that college freshmen are unethical. Like, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'm at a, I'm at a Jesuit university. You know? I was not expecting this. You know, they, they drink and drive. They cheat. They have unsafe sex. I mean, my provost was, he was like, stop the study. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what was so interesting is after an eight-week intervention in mindfulness compared to an eight-week intervention where you told them right from wrong, We found significant improvement in ethical decision-making in the students practicing mindfulness. And what that showed me is that somehow seeing clearly, seeing clearly with a lot of compassion, a lot of wisdom, allows you to make wise choices. So it's not this kind of top-down hierarchy where, you know, someone tells us this is the right way to live, but it's kind of this bottom-up experiential wisdom where we see clearly what's right from wrong. And the last area that I'm really interested in right now is the impact of mindfulness on reducing cultural bias. And again, this has to do with our sense of interconnection and being able to actually see each other clearly. When, when people see someone as similar to them, the insula lights up and it's the part that's responsible for empathy. When we see someone as different, when we categorize someone as other, which Dan was talking about last night, we, we don't empathize with them. And, and and that's really how the atrocities of the world happen is we put people in other boxes and then the, that natural compassion is inactivated. And so I think what mindfulness does is we start to see each other more clearly, and this was a study done at UC Berkeley, is it reduces our sense of other. So they did a study where they, it's very simple. We, we all have something called um, own race bias, which means we see people that look like us, um, we remember them. And people that don't look like us, we're like, they just all kind of blur together. And so they showed um, white students, they showed them pictures of other white students, and then they showed them pictures of people of different uh, ethnicities. And the students who hadn't been practicing mindfulness immediately fell into own race bias. So they didn't recognize the, the other faces that didn't look like them and they recognized the white faces. Students who had practiced mindfulness didn't succumb to that bias. And I think the implications of this are are really significant. So these are three areas I'm, I'm very excited about. And, and what I want you to understand is mindfulness is a powerful tool. It affects our individual physiology, our, our own personal health, and it impacts how we relate to each other and this world. Again, mindfulness means to see clearly, and we want to see clearly so we can respond to the present moment wisely, effectively, compassionately. There's three elements of Mindfulness. The first is our intention, the second is our attention, and the third is our attitude. I'm going to speak about each of these three elements. They work together synergistically. So mindfulness is kind of this this arising of consciousness when we intentionally pay attention in this kind, open way. So our intention is really just about why. Why am I paying attention? As I said before, our, where we put our attention determines our entire life. It's, our attention is the most valuable resource we have in this world. And so it's helpful to kind of reflect on where do I want to focus in my life? And why? What's important to me? So our intention is why. It's what's important. And my favorite quote about intention is, the most important thing is simply to remember the most important thing. Okay, so that's it. All you have to do is figure out what's most important to you. What's most important to you? So this is my son, Jackson. I would say he's definitely the most important thing. And I want to tell you a a short story about intention. So some years ago, gosh, now it was a long years ago, five years ago when he was about nine, um, I was away teaching in Europe for three weeks. And it was the longest we'd ever been apart. And it... As I was kind of you know, on my way home, I remember flying home from Copenhagen, and I started getting really anxious. You know, I've been away too long, I'm a bad mom, I made the wrong choice, I've ruined our attachment bonds. And instead of spiraling down into that mother guilt or parental guilt, does anyone know that one? <laughs> Never good enough. Um, I set a really clear intention. When I get home, I'm not going to unpack, check email, do any of that stuff. I'm going to spend those first 24 hours just reconnecting with Jackson, just letting him know, Mama's home, you're safe, I love you. So I get home. It was a beautiful day in Marin where we live. And we both love going to the beach. So I thought, oh, it's perfect. We'll go to the beach. We'll have this beautiful day reconnecting. So I told Jackson that was the plan. And he kind of shrugged his shoulders. And I start getting everything ready, right? I'm packing up his favorite foods for the picnic and all his gear. And I'm out of the car waving to the neighbors like, see, I'm home. See what a good mom I am. <laughs> you know it's going to end poorly. <laughs> <laughs> so I go back inside. And I'm like, all right, Jackson, you ready to go? And he's like, nah, I don't feel like it. I'm like, what? We're going to go to the beach and I'm going to show you how much I love you. Damn it. (laughs) So he gets on his swim shorts and we're kind of heading out the door and I'm already at the car, ready to go. You know, I want to get to the beach in time for the perfect sunlight and the perfect picnic. And Jackson, he goes and he sits down on our front porch and he's just kind of sitting there, you know, he's sitting there and I, I say, Hey Jackson, let's go. He doesn't even look up. And I notice I start getting frustrated and impatient, right? I'm on, I'm on my agenda. And then luckily, I remembered my intention. What was the most important thing? I just wanted to reconnect with my son. It right? didn't matter if we went to the beach. So I went down, I sit down next to him, and he was watching these ants. And we're sitting there and watching the ants, and they're actually kind of interesting. And all of a sudden, I feel his little body begin to soften. And I feel his shoulder lean into my shoulder. And that was it. That was the most important thing. But we forget. We forget so quickly. So, part of mindfulness is simply remembering what's the most important thing. So, take a moment right now, maybe let your eyes close and just reflect in your life what's important? What do you value? Good. You can let your eyes open. So this is the first element of mindfulness, realigning our hearts with what is most important. As I said last night, it's really setting the compass of your heart. It says, this is the direction I want to go. The second element of mindfulness is our attention. And this is about paying attention in the present moment. So, I've been speaking probably for about 10 minutes. How many people have noticed that your mind has wandered? Come on, everyone, everyone. (laughs) If it hasn't wandered, I want to bring you into a laboratory and study your brain (laughs) because you're the anomaly. Research from Harvard shows our mind wanders 47% of the time, on average, 47%. So, that's about half of your life that you're not present, you're not here. And so part of this practice is learning how to kind of guide our mind back to the present moment, because what typically happens, right? We get lost in the future. What am I going to do when this happens? How am I going to handle this? Or we start ruminating about the past. I wish I had done that. If only I had done that. And what happens is we miss the present moment. And if you think about it, this is the only moment we have, This moment right here, the past is gone. The future doesn't exist yet. This moment, kind of like Dan was talking, exactly like Dan was talking about last night, this present moment, this is the quantum reality. And it is a reality. And it doesn't mean that we don't need to prepare for the future. And it doesn't mean that we don't reflect on our past. It's important to be able to do both, to move from the Newtonian to the quantum worlds. But this is actually where our aliveness exists Right? This is the only time you can feel your body, that emotions exist, that you can connect with another person, that you can learn, that you can integrate, is right now. So part of this practice is training our attention right here, in this moment. The third element of mindfulness is our attitude. And this is the most, I believe this is the most important and the most overlooked. Um, our attitude has to do with paying attention with kindness and curiosity. And when I was first studying mindfulness, so after my surgery about three years later, I decided to go to Thailand. And I had been practicing mindfulness on and off by myself, but hadn't really ever gone to a meditation retreat. And so I end up in Thailand for this two-week silent meditation retreat, not really knowing what to expect, and kind of understanding that mindfulness was about being present. Just focusing on the present moment. And so when I arrived at the monastery, the monks didn't speak much English and I didn't speak any Thai, but they instructed me to feel my breath going in and out of my nose as a way to focus my attention. So I sat down to begin, and you know, one breath, two breaths, my mind wandered off. <laughs> right being present isn't so easy our mind is just taken away with all these thoughts watch your mind watch it right now the mind has no shame it goes wherever it wants to go have you noticed (laughs) and so what happened was I tried harder and it didn't work and so I started to judge myself what's wrong with you you're terrible at this you're a fake why are you even here And then not only was I judging myself, I started judging everyone around me, even the monks. Why are they just sitting here? Shouldn't they be doing something? (laughs) Um, And luckily, a a monk from London arrived who spoke English. And as I shared with him my struggles and my judgments and my frustrations and my self-judgment, he looked at me and he said, oh dear, you're not practicing mindfulness. He said, you're practicing impatience, frustration, judgment, And then he said these five words, what you practice grows stronger. What you practice grows stronger. We know this now with neuroplasticity. Our repeated experiences, our repeated thought patterns, behaviors, shape our brain. So he explained to me that if I was meditating with judgment, I was growing judgment. Meditating with frustration, growing frustration. He helped me understand that mindfulness isn't just about paying attention. It's about how we pay attention. He said it's like these loving arms that welcome everything, even the messy, imperfect parts of ourselves. This attitude of mindfulness, this kindness, this openness, this kind of like the most loving grandparent you could ever imagine, I believe is the essential ingredient. And it's one that is almost completely overlooked when we're talking and teaching mindfulness. When I came back to the United States and started my PhD and became a therapist, what I was most struck by was the significant amount of self-judgment and shame that people carry. This sense of, I'm not good enough. I'm not doing it right. There's something wrong with me. Do you know what I'm talking about? I certainly did. And so I became really interested in in shame and self-judgment and what happens when we judge ourselves. Because often we judge ourselves because we feel like we've done something wrong and we want to improve, right? Um, What I learned is that shame doesn't work. Shame never works. It literally can't work. When we feel shame, the parts of the brain that have to do with learning shut down. So we actually lock ourselves in repeating the same mistakes that we want to change. What happens is the amygdala triggers this cascade of norepinephrine and cortisol that floods our system. It shuts down the learning centers of the brain and shuttles all of our resources to survival pathways. So shame literally robs you of the resources you need to change. So what's the alternative? Right? We've made a mistake. We've done something we don't want to do. We, we all have parts of our lives and parts of ourselves that we want to change and that perhaps need to change. But shame doesn't work. Right? If it worked, I'd, you know, I'd say, go beat yourself up you know, if it's going to make you better, but it doesn't work. So the alternative is this attitude of kindness, this attitude I was speaking about with mindfulness of kindness and curiosity. What happens when we're kind and curious is first, it bathes our system in dopamine, It turns on the learning centers of the brain. It turns on the motivation centers of the brain. And second, when we're kind, when we're welcoming, when we're open, we're able to see clearly those parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of, those parts that otherwise it's too painful to look at. So mindfulness then involves these three core elements of intention, attention, attitude. This is the official definition um, from the United Kingdom Parliament. They say, mindfulness is paying attention with an attitude of curiosity and kindness. This was published in 2015, only 15 years after the model that we published. But I'm overjoyed because this really brought it, you know, I've been talking about kindness for a long time and no one in the academy really um, uh, gave it much attention. And so now it's actually part of the official definition what's interesting about mindfulness is that it's become kind of so mainstream that it has even worked its way into the military, which is an unexpected place for it. And so the story I want to share with you is um, about a a high-ranking official who was having a lot of anger management issues. And so he was um, mandated to attend a mindfulness training course to work on his anger management. And when he first arrived, he was maybe somewhat um, hesitant to engage in the practices, but he really dedicated himself to them and really um, applied himself in earnest. And he told this story about a month into the program. He said he was at, at the grocery store and he was pushing this cart full of groceries and Just before he was getting into the line to check out, this elderly woman holding a little baby girl stepped in front of him. And she had only one item. She just had a carton of milk. And he's kind of annoyed that she stepped in front of him. And then he looked over, and to his right, the express lane was completely empty. And he was like, why didn't she go in that lane? You know, he likes people to go in the right lanes, and she was clearly in the wrong lane. Um, So he starts getting angry. But then he remembers his mindfulness and his intention to work on his anger. So he takes a breath and he calms down his anger. And and so then he's standing in line, just waiting patiently. And all of a sudden this elderly woman and the young checkout clerk start cooing and awing over the baby. And then the woman hands the baby <clears throat> to the checkout clerk for a hug. And he's like, are you kidding me? Like, is this a nursery? Like, what the hell are they doing? And he's about to explode in anger. Like, are you and then all of a sudden, he remembers his mindfulness practice. He takes another breath. And as he starts to calm down, he looks up and he sees that the little girl is actually pretty cute. <clears throat> and instant later, she's back in the woman's arms and they leave the grocery store. And <clears throat> as the young checkout clerk is ringing him up, he says to her, that little girl is pretty cute. And she looks up and she says, really? Thank you. That, that's my daughter. She said, my husband died um, in Afghanistan last year and I had to go back to work. And so my mom brings her in every day through my line for a hug. So I want to talk just a little bit about the power of practice. And when I talk about practice, it's not just the meditation practice. It's the practice of mindfulness. And the reason that I want to share this with you, because for me, it's the most hopeful message in the scientific literature that I've come across, is this work on neuroplasticity. And so I share it to kind of maybe encourage and inspire you over this weekend to really use this time, which is so precious, to practice, to practice in any way, to practice standing and gazing at the ocean, to practice swimming in the pool, to practice the compassion and mindfulness practices you'll be learning. So a little bit of background. As recently as the 1990s, we thought that the brain was static and fixed, that it couldn't change and then one of the most important discoveries in the past 400 years i believe is the discovery of neuroplasticity the the finding that our brain is constantly changing throughout our entire lifespan that our repeated experiences shape the brain so one of the kind of first studies and and i, I think most extraordinary was a study done with uh, london taxi drivers and I don't know if you know this, I didn't realize this, but London taxi drivers have to go through four years of training called the knowledge so that they can learn how to navigate the 25,000 streets of London. So if you think about it, in in the United States, you know, doctors go through four years of training. Um, So it's a lot of training. And what they found after the four years is that the visual spatial mapping part of the brain had grown bigger and stronger, right? They had been practicing navigating the streets of London all day long. What you practice grows stronger. The same is true of meditation. When we practice mindfulness or the sitting meditation or the walking meditation or our exercise, when we bring these qualities of kindness, curiosity, intention, we actually change our brain. So what this is called is cortical thickening. It's the growth of new neurons in response to repeated practice. It's, it's just like going to the gym, right? You're, you're actually shifting the pathways of the brain. What this means and why this is so hopeful is that all of us have the capacity to change. It's never too late. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what's happened in your life, no matter where you are... Every single person has the capacity to change. It's not about this radical change where all of a sudden we're perfect. It's 5% more. It's these small steps. That's how evolution works, right? It's these small steps that lead to big changes. And so some of the research that that I find so inspiring and, and for me just so hopeful is the research showing that we can even rewire our brain to be happier. And the reason this is so helpful is I'm I'm a clinical psychologist. And so what we were taught in graduate school, and is true in all the research books, is that there's something called a happiness set point, which is that we're born with a certain set point of happiness, and that this doesn't change very much over the lifetime. So this is based on research showing that when people win the lottery, they have this blip of happiness... But one year later, they return to baseline. Even more surprising, people who are in terrible accidents and become paralyzed for life, they have a huge drop of happiness, but one year later, they return to their baseline level. So this is great news if you're born happy, (laughs) right? Life knocks you down, you pop back up. But it's not such good news if you weren't born happy, because then no matter what happens, no matter how big your success is, how much your gains, your happiness level doesn't ultimately change. What's so hopeful about this new research on neuroplasticity is it shows that even though external changes won't change your happiness, internal changes can. Happiness can be trained because the very structure of your brain can be modified. So quote by neuroscientist Richie Davidson, happiness can be trained because the very structure of your brain can be modified. And what I like to say is that anything can be trained because the very structure of your brain can be modified. We can cultivate pathways of generosity, of joy, of gratitude, of connection, of intimacy through these practices of mindfulness. Uh, This is some research done at Harvard by Dr. Sarah Lazar, and what she showed is that people who practice mindfulness over periods of time actually change not only the activity of their brain, but the very structure of their brain in areas that have to do with emotional intelligence, happiness, compassion, empathy, learning, memory. We can learn practices that rewire the brain and grow our resources. How do we bring this into a world that isn't always safe, that is stressful, that is challenging? And what I would say is grow your resources. Grow your resources so that you have the capacity to meet the present moment, whatever it is. Whatever it is. What you practice grows stronger. I'm always struck by that monk told me this over twenty years ago. He had never taken a class in neuroscience. And yet he knew what you practice grows stronger. And so the question I believe that's really important is, what do you want to grow? What do you want to grow?
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors.